0: I want to thank you for participating in that way. All right. You can tell that we don't normally take a collection because we're not great at it. Uh, the overseers do a good job of passing the baskets out. Good job, guys. All right. We are continuing our study in the book of Luke, and we're uh, we're progressing. Maybe not quickly, but steadily through it. Uh, we're not in the habit of trying to be speedy uh, in our understanding of the Scriptures, but we want to be accurate and we want to work through, uh, through the Scriptures themselves. So as we're in Luke 11 again today, we're, we're looking at the second portion of this chapter, uh, which puts a couple of things together that come directly out of what we see preceding. So in the beginning of um, in the beginning of Luke chapter eleven, we see Jesus teaching on prayer, and that this is about relationship, not ritual. And then we get this little teaching on spiritual warfare, which was not an accident. God had planned it, but it comes out of Jesus being accused of, uh, I guess you could say, being a double agent, casting out demons on behalf of the devil. And so Jesus explains a little bit about how spiritual warfare works. And we learned that it doesn't do any good to get the devil out if we don't get Jesus in. Amen? Amen. So as we're moving into today's uh, topic, as we're working working through this chapter, we see a transition. After these things take place, Jesus gets invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner, as we'll read in a moment. And when he's there, Jesus is pretty direct with his host, and it's not very nice. Sometimes we get the idea that that, uh, being a Christian is about being nice. It's more than that. Now, don't get me wrong, we don't want to be not nice. We don't want to be (coughs) offensive in our manner. However, truth is inherently offensive. Nice guys are not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about speaking the truth in love, the truth being that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But we can't get to him, we can't get to a relationship with God with a bunch of external trappings. We can't go through the motions of religious activity and end up in a place where we have impressed God like we think we can impress the pastor or impress our neighbor. This is a bigger thing. And all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we see this ministry of the whole person. God doesn't want your religious worship. What he wants is your whole self. As we get into this today, there's a core reality that ties it together. Hopefully you'll see that clearly. And that is that real life involves surrendering my whole self to Christ. Say that with me if you would. Real life involves surrendering my whole self to Christ. Let's examine the scriptures and see what it says. We're in Luke chapter 11, as I mentioned. You're going to want a Bible of your own. So if you don't have one, just raise your hand and uh, Mr. Todd will take care of you and make sure you've got one because uh, you want to be able to, to read the Bible for yourself, not just hear what I have to say about it. We'll be picking up with verse 29. <coughs> Pardon me, please bear with me. I made the mistake of going to Florida this week and got sick, so if I'd have stayed up here, I probably would have been fine, but it's that terrible weather they have down south. Picking up with verse 29, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they're unhealthy your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves Which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves won't lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets. who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions wanting to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray together. Father, today we are gathered in your name as your body. (coughs) This is your church. We are your church. We're not here for our own purposes, Lord, even though we may have come for a variety of different things in our own minds but we're here for you we're here for your purpose that's the reason for this gathering so father as we open your word I ask that you would speak beyond your servant's stammering tongue speak beyond my shortcomings and frailty that we might forget the preacher and remember the word Father in heaven work a miracle in us take away our heart of stone give us a heart of flesh that we might receive everything that you intend for us to receive from your word today we know that the enemy seeks to deceive us, to distract us, to discourage us, we ask that you would silence any voice that is not yours. Father, we regularly battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you have silenced the devil in our presence, Lord, then we ask that you would right now Strip away anything of this world that might be nagging at our minds. Strip away from us the urges of the flesh that would distract us from receiving what you want to feed our spirit today. Lord, teach us in this moment to surrender our whole selves. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus who did that very thing. Amen. <clears throat> Pretty common in relationships uh, after a period of time to start to feel like maybe the magic has faded. Maybe we're just going through the motions. And when that tends to happen, we come up with all sorts of secular ideas of, as far as how to, how to keep that relationship on track how to spice up your marriage. And I got to tell you I've over the course of the years partly because I've been married for 30 years and partly because I've been trying to counsel others, I've seen a lot of marriage advice and I want to encourage you strongly to throw most of it out because <laughs> it's junk. If you really want to have a marriage, a relationship of any kind that has a long-lasting impact, Forget about all of the activities that you need to go through, all of the jumping through hoops to try to spice it up, the commitment to date night. I'm not telling you not to have a date night, but for 6,000 years, people did not have date nights. And people stayed married. All of these external things do not have the same impact as choosing within to cherish that other person, to see them as precious, to see them as valuable, beyond the feelings of the moment, to make a decision that I'm going to engage on the inside, which will then lead to activities on the outside. But if I just go through the motions on the outside, then I still have that emptiness on the inside. In all of the great romantic escapes, Cruises, flowers, chocolates, diamonds, all of those things fall short. They're meaningless. If I have everything right on the outside, but my inside isn't connected, I've lost it all. Jesus said, what, is it, what does it gain a person? If you were to gain the whole world, what does it profit you if you then lose your soul? We can get everything right on the outside and miss it on the inside. In this particular portion of Luke chapter 11, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. The the Pharisee invites him to dinner. Now that's an interesting thing in itself. Why would he invite him to dinner? We already know, we've seen this for many chapters now, that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and and the synagogue rulers and, and the teachers of the law have already decided together Jesus has got to go. We're getting rid of this guy. We're looking for a way to trap him. So why would you invite him to dinner? Not because of sincere seeking, knowing that situation. If he were sincerely seeking, he would have sought him in private. He would have turned away from the other leaders, but instead he gathers together the religious leaders that are part of that circle, brings Jesus over. (laughs) We're going to get him. Come on over. Step into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Jesus knows, because he's Jesus. It's not that he took the bait. It's that Jesus is God. And when he steps into this, he has a purpose in it. So he gets there, and as they go to take the meal, they have a ceremonial washing. This is not part of the uh, scriptural law, but it was part of the Jewish tradition. So it was in addition to the ceremonial law, that would ensure a cleansing. So it wasn't so much to get the dirt off of your hands, but to show your spirituality. I'm going to cleanse myself much as I would going into the temple. So as they do this ceremonial washing, not that it's a bad thing, but it's not an essential thing. Jesus doesn't do it. Now I have to wonder, maybe you're wondering too, why wouldn't he do it? Did Jesus never wash? I think he probably generally did. He was a good Jewish boy. Generally speaking, why would he not? But at least on this occasion, Jesus chooses not to. Do we think he forgot? I don't think so. I think Jesus is setting up this exact conversation. So the Pharisee, who's already looking for something to trap Jesus in probably wasn't prepared for this he's looking for a way to get him a little later but right out of the gate wow he didn't he didn't wash his hands he's violated our tradition so he's able to go right away so he, he sees this and he notices and jesus doesn't let the moment pass Again, not an accident. Jesus is not known for being ungracious to his hosts. But it says in uh, verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong passage. Let me jump ahead. Uh, I lost my place, forgive me. Here we go. In verse 39, the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And he says, you foolish people. How foolish is it? Now imagine if you're doing your dishes. He's talking spiritually, but imagine if you're doing your dishes and you decide you're going to wash the outside of the cup and you don't do anything with the inside. Who wants to drink from that cup? That's gross. Jesus is saying, look, in a spiritual sense, what happens inside is much more important than what happens on the outside. Now, that's the perspective he has when he starts out this conversation. Notice that this starts to go this direction before he ever gets to the Pharisee's house. He's doing all these things. He's talking about spiritual warfare. He's lecturing about these things. And as the crowds increase, Jesus has a fantastic way of chasing people away he is like the least seeker sensitive preacher that there is you think about all of the the methodology that we use today people trying to have these special seeker sensitive services coming up with all sorts of gimmicks to get more and more people to church jesus does just the opposite crowds get too big and he says something really hard really challenging really offensive So the crowds are getting big here, right? They're coming. They've seen the signs. They've seen the miracles. They've seen him teach with authority to uh, put the religious leaders in their place. And they gather around. Ooh, let's see what he's going to do next. And next thing he says is, you people are wicked. That's not how you build a following. So Jesus has this habit of saying, don't tell anybody who I am. And when they start to come, because you can't miss it, you're all wicked. You brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. Again, not seeking popularity. Verse 29, As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. He speaks of this elsewhere, but as he's looking at this, the point here is that they are not going to be changed by whatever he does. Jesus has given lots of signs. He's done lots of miracles. He has established who he is, and the people are coming to see tricks. They're looking for signs. Do us another sign. Give us another sign. Show us. Prove that you're God. Jesus is saying, it would not matter what sign is coming because your hearts are wicked. You just want more stuff. You want more show. You don't want me. So he says that you're not going to get the sign except for the sign of Jonah. Now in Matthew when he talks about this (coughs) sign of Jonah, he refers to himself, uh, his death and resurrection. So that's clearly in view here. But the point in Luke's recording isn't that, how do we know? Because he doesn't mention it. He focuses in on what happens to the Ninevites. You know the story of Jonah. God calls him to go to Nineveh, the Assyrian city. That's the enemies of God. That's the great, massive city. These are not godly people, and God is going to bring judgment on them. And for whatever reason, God, in his sovereign grace, sends this Uh, Israelite prophet to go to this Gentile city to say turn from your wickedness God is going to destroy you interestingly he doesn't even say turn from your wickedness he just says God is going to destroy you and as he does they turn from their wickedness in the hopes that God in his compassion would not destroy them they get the message they repent God doesn't destroy them it's a pretty good formula Jesus is saying, the sign you're going to get is the same sign that, Noah, that Jonah gave the Ninevites. Destruction is coming. Repent. Repent because if you do not, judgment will fall upon you. It will be swift. It will be fierce. It will be final. That same message that he gave to Nineveh, Jesus is giving to the people of that day. He's giving to us today. God's wrath, Paul writes in Romans 1, is being poured out on mankind because we have suppressed the truth by our wickedness. By wanting to do our thing according to our understanding rather than doing God's thing as He has told us, we have suppressed the truth. We have caused ourselves to think that we are wise when we are utterly foolish. We have caused ourselves to think That we have the right, boy we love rights, to determine our own destiny. But that's not how this works. We were created by God for His purposes. So when we decide that we're going to do things our way in whatever format we're talking about. We have a society right now that has no use for the things of God. Even in the church. Even in the church, we wrestle with whether or not God's word really fits the world we live in today. You know, that's kind of old-fashioned. We need to update it a little bit. You know, when God says that sex outside of marriage is wrong, uh, you know, he didn't really mean that so much. It It was only for that time. We play at so many things when God has given us clear truth. Why? Because our hearts are hard. And we decide we want to do our thing. We suppress the truth by our wickedness. Jesus says, wicked generation. Listen, the sign you get is judgment is coming. And it's embodied this opportunity to repent is embodied in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he will be buried and in the ground for three days just as Jonah was in the fish and then he will rise again. But the Ninevites repent. The generation there, like our own, tends to want to do it on our own terms. He refers to the Queen of the South or the Queen of Sheba who came up to to visit Solomon and brought lots of wealth so that Solomon would just speak wisdom. She recognized the wisdom of this Israelite king. And Jesus is saying there's a greater truth. There's a greater truth, greater wisdom now. You don't have to go and seek it. It's here. I am here in your midst and you're choosing everything else. You just want more tricks, more signs. Why are people so drawn to snake handlers, faith healers, big fancy production in church? We wrestle with that here. The balance between, hey, that's a really cool song, man. We're going to jam on that. Is that what we want? We're not here to have a cool song to jam. We're here to encounter the living God. We're here for our hearts to be changed. Anything else is a sham. As Jesus tells this generation of its wickedness, He's telling us the same thing. Real life involves surrendering my whole self to Christ. Not just wanting some new sign. He goes on with this illustration of light and eyes. Now, I've struggled with my eyesight since I was in like second grade. Always have had a difficult time with my eyesight. I can see things that are real close, but then if I take my contacts out, none of you all have faces. And half of you don't even exist, right? So it's a struggle, and as I'm uh, now battling a, a cataract, battling like it's some big deal. I've got a cataract in my left eye. I'm eventually gonna have to have surgery for it. But I notice that I I really feel it when it's dark. Shelly and I are battling over the lights in the living room all the time. It's so bright in here. I'm like, no, it's so dark in here. My mother never has enough lights on in the house. So. I have a hunger for light because I can't get enough light into my eye. Your eye, when Jesus says it's the lamp of the body, it's what illuminates your inner self. As I take in the light, this external light, the the flashlight or the spotlight that shines it into my body is my eye, much like the lens and shutter of a camera that allows the light in. That lens and shutter of the camera also controls the light that comes in. My eye does that with my body. Jesus isn't speaking about just your physical eye. He's using it to make a point. We have spiritual eyes too. And our spiritual eyes bring in the light. We need to be aware of what light we bring in. Is it really light? Or do we bring in darkness? Verse 33, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Notice this. I got a little bit ahead of myself. Let me back up because I don't want to, I don't want to jump. Uh, write down this first point. Repentance is an inside job. Repentance is an inside job. What changed in Nineveh? Their hearts. They made a decision. What brought the queen of the south to Solomon? She made a decision inside that there was something out there worth seeking, worth pursuing. The people that Jesus is talking to and far too often we in our generation are looking for God to give us something. Something out there. And what changes us is what happens in here. We're going to see this clearly illustrated as he moves into the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're focusing on the external. But just like he says to the crowds, repentance starts inside. The wickedness, the hardness that keeps us from repenting, that causes us to want more and more signs, more and more proof, more and more evidence, is the hardness of our hearts repentance is an inside job it has to come from within and when our hard hearts are removed from us as God said in Ezekiel I will take that heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh in you when God gives us the soft heart to be able to receive his word it's like plowing up a field so that it can receive seed But if we don't receive that seed, then we're not going to be able to do it. We're not going to be able to have that that change. Moving back to the, the, the eye and the lamp of the body, I apologize for missing that first point. Notice this, truth has a transformational purpose. Truth has a transformational purpose. When you light a lamp, you put it on a stand. You light it for a reason, to illuminate the room. God does that same thing with truth in our lives. The spiritual light that Jesus is talking about here coming into us. The Word of God has a purpose to change us, to have an impact on us. Notice in verse 14, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also also is full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, the whole body, if if the whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. The reality of this is it's designed to be like a spotlight. What I put in me is going to come out of me. There is an external reality There's an external truth. God's word stands whether or not I believe it. We need to recognize this. God is who he is. His word says what it says. Truth is truth whether or not you and I ever accept it. I can deny it. We can argue about it. The whole world can come against it. Everybody on television can tell you, no, 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 it's got to be this way. The government can tell you that, oh, you know, that's bigotry. You can't say those things. Truth stands as truth, whether we accept it or not. It is external. But it has an impact. Notice with our eyes that in this next point, I choose what I take in. I choose what I take in. He says, make sure that what the light that is in you is actually light. Make sure that you've got the real truth in you. I get to decide what I put in. That has to do with choosing the teaching that I fill myself with. Now, when I think of teaching, you might think, well, that has to do with the sermons I listen to, the Bible studies and all that kind of stuff. It's that, but it's more. It has to do with my entertainment choices. The things I listen to, the things that I see, the people that I spend time with. All of these influences on my life are things that I am choosing to take in. And if my light is mingled with that anti-light then I'm not going to have a healthy inside. And if I don't have a healthy inside, I can't have a healthy outside. I have to choose to throw away that which is false. I have to choose to throw away theology that panders to my desires. It's one of the problems that we run into theologically in the church, is we start to shape God after our own desires. We try to create a God in our image. Because God can't do that. That would be mean. Says who? God is the definition of good. And therefore, what God does is good and right. And I need to learn how to wrap my mind around it. God is God and I am not. Well, my God wouldn't do that. Then your God's an idol. What the word says is what the word says. I get to choose what I take in. I get to decide if I'm going to listen to man-centered preaching, if I'm going to read the Bible according to my own desires, or take God at his word. I choose what I take in. Repentance is an inside job. Truth has a transformational purpose. I choose what I take in. Notice what he says here. It happens when <clears throat> Excuse me. what he says happens when I'm full of light. If your whole body is full of light, no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. In other words, what, when I fill my inside with light, my outside is filled with light as well. I'll be just as filled with light as if I'm standing in a spotlight shining on me, but the light is coming from within because I've taken the reality of Christ and i filled myself with that reality. We're told in John 1 that Jesus has in himself life. He is life. And that life is the light of men. The light of Christ in me is what causes my whole life to be lit up, to be illuminated. When I have a hard time seeing where I'm going, I need to fill myself with Christ. How do I do that? Through the word. Again in John 1 we're told that Jesus is the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. In Psalm 119, we're told that God's Word is a lamp, it's a light. It shows us the way. If we're having a hard time seeing, it's because we're not filling ourselves with that light. Now, we fill ourselves with all sorts of things, all sorts of priorities. Every time I turn on a television, I'm filling myself with something. Every time I listen to the radio, I'm filling myself with something. Every book I read, every conversation I have. I am constantly inundated with the darkness of this world. I have to choose to push that out. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. we'll come back to Luke 11. Going to go to the right a little bit. Past John and Acts. I'd love to take you to Romans 8, we don't have time for that. So we're going to jump right to 12. <coughs> Notice what Paul writes, starting with verse 1. Repentance is an inside job. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. If you want to worship God, you need to offer yourself, your whole self. It's an inside job. There is a transformational purpose in it, as we continue through verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The truth that God gives us as we make ourselves living sacrifices has a purpose of changing us. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I get to choose what I take in. I renew my mind with God's word. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'll be able to understand God better when I fill myself with His word, when I surrender myself to His will. Notice this. This will all be illustrated in the Pharisees again. But notice what happens here. If my whole body is full of light, no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you mark this, when, an ex, when external truth becomes internal reality, then internal holiness becomes external righteousness. When external truth becomes internal reality, then internal holiness becomes external righteousness. When the truth that is not me, it's not in me, it's outside of me, it's objective, it's God's truth that stands alone, becomes my truth, not in that it has an entity of its own in me, but I now take hold of it. And what is already existentially true becomes mine. It becomes an internal reality for me. Then that internal reality that unites me with Christ and sets me apart on the inside, in the inner person, will inevitably become my external experience. If I am allowing myself to choose what I put in, to fill myself with light, then the truth that I put in will work its way out. When the external truth becomes my internal reality then the internal holiness being set apart for God becomes an external righteousness. Righteousness, holiness has to do with ourselves being set apart for him. Righteousness has to do with how we act on the outside, how we act toward others. Seeking justice, loving mercy, walking with our God. When we do these things from a heart that is holy, God is pleased. We have integrity and authenticity. We can't do any of that stuff if we don't have Him. I need the external truth, the reality of the gospel. What is the gospel? Like God, who is holy, has righteous wrath, deserved anger toward sin. All sin, and therefore all sinners. So all of us have fallen short of his glorious standard and all of us have to pay for that with death. But God loves us. So he reaches down past our sin, upholding his own righteous standard in Christ. And he takes Jesus, who has no sin of his own, and causes him to die in our place as an atoning sacrifice. To pay for my sin I take hold of that by faith by simply saying I I trust that this is true and right and I'm going to turn from my way to his we call that repentance there is no salvation apart from repentance if I'm going to think I can keep doing things my way I am wrong I cannot be saved without repenting without turning from my way to God's way. Not perfectly, but increasingly. I can't hold on to my idols while I'm worshiping God. Those two things never, ever are compatible. But the reality of all of my sin is that I can't fix it. I can't clean myself up. That's what the Pharisees and uh, teachers of the law are trying to do. Trying to give people burdens, measures, to see how godly you are, how spiritual you are. That doesn't work. I can't stack up good deeds to outweigh my sin. One drop of sin outweighs an ocean of my good deeds. I can't ever fix that. But paying the price for my sin, Jesus died and rose again. So if I trust in him, the Bible says I can be saved. If I confess with my mouth that he is Lord, and I believe in my heart that he rose from the dead, then I'll be saved. Because God loves us that much. So, what's the problem? The problem is when I do things on the outside and not the inside. Real life involves surrendering my whole self to Christ. Not my religious self, not my church self, not my Sunday self. Not how I behave when uh, my friends from church are around. My whole self. As he deals with these Pharisees, they are very concerned with how things look. All the external rituals. Some of you grew up in a church where you had a lot of rituals. A little more formal perhaps than what we've got here. But even here, we have, you know, we we just as humans we develop our own rituals. And we start to create things that that look right. And if we don't do it a certain way, then it must be wrong. It's got to follow a certain pattern. Things that we tend to believe. And if you grew up in a church where you have to dress a certain way, and anybody who doesn't dress that way, clearly they're not spiritual, then you kind of know what Jesus is dealing with here. If you grew up in a church (coughs) excuse me, where you were used to seeing people go through the motions. You followed the rules. You checked the boxes. Maybe you went to confession or to communion or you were baptized. You know, all of the different things that, that we do in, in a variety of churches. You put the ashes on your head on Ash Wednesday. You, you fasted during Lent. Do all those things. And yet you knew the people there were not engaged in their hearts. Maybe you were that person. Then you know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. It's not that what the Pharisees were doing was wrong. In fact, they're doing some of the right things. The problem is, they're only doing them on the outside. You've got to do it on the inside. Notice what he says to them. Verse 39. Now, then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside, you be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean to you. In other words, give yourself away. Stop trying to do all of these things to impress people and give yourself away. Give your heart from the inside to the poor. Give your belongings, but give from the heart. And when you do that, then your outside will be right as well. He's not saying if you give to the poor, then you, know, you get a pass on these other things. This is like your penance. I'm going to give to the poor, and then my sins are forgiven. What he's saying is if you're not given to the poor, your sins won't be forgiven. It's not this is how the coin has to stick in the slot, but it's a reflection of what's going on inside. His whole emphasis here is on the inside. And then he starts to light them up a little bit. He points out to them six ways to ruin everything. Or we might call it how to be a hypocrite in six easy steps. Jesus walks them through these things. And when I say walks them through, he's not gentle. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees. Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Yes, you should be doing all of these things, but you're focused on the details and you're missing the point. Step one, first way to ruin everything, major on the minors. Major on the minors. Jesus says, look, you've got to major on the majors. What are the two greatest commandments? He makes it very clear in Matthew 22. He's looking back the same thing that, the, uh, that the, the rich young ruler knew. If you want to keep the law, here's the important stuff. The important stuff is love God with everything. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is the big stuff. If you get that, then the rest of it falls into place. He says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. They're connected. Major on the majors. Don't major on the minors. They're getting all hung up on the details of tithing while they're not taking care of their parents' financial needs. They're letting their parents go hungry. Oh, mom and dad, I would take care of you, but I have to give this money to the temple. it sounds really pious. Jesus says, take care of your business. You have to honor your parents. You have to love justice. You have to love mercy. I would rather have you give alms to the poor than to give all of your perfectly measured out tithing from your spices as some external form of worship. But he doesn't say don't do the tithing. He says, instead, you should do that without neglecting the more important points of the law. Verse 41, he says, I'm sorry, 43, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. How to ruin everything? How to be a hypocrite? Seek status and respect. Seek status and respect. Well, don't we all want to be respected? Sure, we do. That's a flesh thing. If you want to honor God, forget about your respect. Seek his glory. Seek his honor. Humble yourself. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. These religious leaders wanted people to think well of them. It sounds innocent enough, but it is an insidious evil. When you and I want people to think well of us, our pride will keep us from following God. We will be more concerned about the fear of man than the fear of God. We will be more concerned about how those around us look at us and our reputation, our status, and our respect than we will about glorifying, honoring God, and sacrificial love. If you want to be a hypocrite, seek status and respect. Verse 44, he says, Woe to you because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. The Pharisees were very particular about making sure that they were ceremonially clean. They could not be near a dead body or be near a grave. So the Jews went to great lengths to whitewash their, their tombs so they were clearly marked and they looked nice. So they got these pretty whitewashed tombs. In another place, he actually refers to them as whitewashed tombs. But here he says, you're like unmarked tombs. What does that mean? They mark these tombs, they whitewash them so that you can't miss it, and you don't accidentally defile yourself. He's telling them that you are subtly defiling and corrupting those around you. People are being poisoned by you, and they don't even know it. You are like that grave that people don't know they're walking on. And they've become ceremonially unclean without being aware. If you want to ruin everything, if you want to become a hypocrite, then subtly corrupt others. Subtly corrupt others. If I am doing things and teaching things that go against God's will, and I do it in such a way that it seems good and wholesome and pure like so many Christian books in Christian bookstores that are nothing more than therapeutic self-help things that take our focus away from God and put it on fixing ourselves, then I am no more than an unmarked grave. I am corrupting people without them knowing it because they are innocently going along while my falsehood is staining them. If you want to be a hypocrite, subtly... Corrupt other people. One of the experts in the law answered him, "Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also." It's like Jesus, not not me. It reminds me of the uh, at the Last Supper when he says the betrayers here. He's like, surely not I, Lord. And Judas is like, not me, right? Jesus doubles down, verse forty-six. Yeah, you're right. I do insult you also. Let's get to it. You experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves won't lift one finger to help them. Mark this, if you want to be a hypocrite, if you want to ruin everything, develop rules to measure godliness. Develop rules to measure godliness. That's the burden they're they're talking about. You keep on adding more and more to the law to make sure that nobody gets close to the edge. If you really want to be spiritual, then you don't do this. And you don't do that. And you stay away from that thing. And they go beyond the law of God, beyond the commands of holiness in Scripture, to add to it, so that if you live up to these standards that we've set, then we'll know that you're spiritual. You're a good Christian if you don't drink and don't chew and don't go with girls that do. You'll know that you're a good Christian if you don't get a tattoo, if you uh, you know, wear a tie to church, if you don't go to that neighborhood, if you don't watch Marvel movies, whatever it is. We come up with all kinds of silly things. And all of our rules, just like theirs, start somewhere where we think we're doing a good thing. We think we can add to God's word and make it better. We would never say that, but that's exactly what it is. Temperance is a good thing. When it begins to supplant the word of God, it's a bad thing. Holiness is a good thing, but holiness is determined by God, not by the preacher. Not by the priest. Not by your grandma. Not by the person next to you in the pew. And certainly not by you for anybody else or even yourself. When we really, really want to be hypocrites, we can develop rules to measure godliness. He continues with them. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 47, Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets you build their tombs because of this god in his wisdom said i will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed from the beginning of the world from the blood of abel to the blood of zechariah literally from a to z who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary i was the last martyr of the old testament Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. He's not saying that they killed the prophets, that that was their thing. And I don't think that Jesus' point here is that they were the biological descendants of those people. They were, but so were lots of other folks. There seems to be the the um, the point here that They are the spiritual descendants of these people. Jerusalem was the city that killed the prophets. All of Israel inherited that. But he's saying to these teachers of the law, look, you're building tombs here. You're participating in the same sins because you're out to kill me. You're out to reject me. You're doing the same things they did. And you're hiding it. By building their tombs. You're just as guilty as they ever were. And you're going through these religious ceremonies to show how pious you are. As you build tombs for the prophets. Shrines, we might call them. And as you build these shrines to show your holiness, all you're doing is bringing condemnation on yourself. You're hiding it. You're couching it. Note this, if you want to ruin everything and be a hypocrite, Hide your sin in religious activity. Hide your sin in religious activity. We do that a lot. If we're busy enough, if we're active enough, if we look spiritual enough, people won't notice. We won't even notice that we are so far off the reservation we have stopped in any way hearing the voice of God. These teachers of the law were doing all sorts of religious things, but they were not communing with God at all. And Jesus condemns them for it. How much of church activity in our age is just like that? There is a a story recently in Canada, the Church of Canada, which is uh, the Canadian version, basically, of the Anglican Church, or the Church of England. (laughs) I have a hard time even saying this. There was a uh, a pastor, uh, a woman there who was. Uh, they were wrestling with how to discipline her or whether to discipline her, and they decided not to uh, because she was the pastor, but she is an atheist. And, and I heard that. I'm thinking this must be a joke. No, no, that that's true. She doesn't believe in God per se. Believes in spirituality and all these other things but but not in God. Doesn't believe in the Bible but she's a pastor in the church and they ended up not trying her for heresy which is astonishing in, in its own way but it reminded me of so many other things that we see here today. There are churches in our area who reject the word of God but they still have church and people gather not very many because after a certain time what's the point if there isn't something different here then why why bother if there's no standard if there's no truth if you're not telling me that there's something that i can get here that i can't get anywhere else then why bother which is why the liberal mainline denominations are in decline The fact of the matter is, we do church a lot without Jesus. That's a dangerous place to be. And it brings God's wrath when we hide our sin in religious activity. Lastly, we see in verse 52, Jesus say, Woe to you experts in the law because you've taken away the key to knowledge you yourselves have not entered. and You've hindered those who were entering. Sixth the way that you can ruin everything and be a hypocrite. Hinder the spiritual walk of others. Hinder the spiritual walk of others. I want to be very clear as I say this. The scripture holds those who purport to teach, to lead to a higher standard. We live in a day where people wearing the name of Christ in churches, calling themselves pastors and teachers, tell people that sin isn't sin. We tell people that good is evil and evil is good. Woe to us. It is impossible. It is impossible to honor God while we hinder the spiritual walk of others. I, I wasn't going to do this, but i got to have you turn back to Romans again. Romans chapter 1. I'm trying really hard not to go off on opinion here, so I want to make sure that we are rooted in the word of God. The teachers of the law are doing just the opposite of this this license idea that I'm referring to today because license tends to be the issue that we have. But legalism and license always tend to go hand in hand, two sides of the same coin. Holiness churches of, of yesteryear have become licentious liberal churches of today largely because it's an unsustainable thing when we get very legalistic. We can't sustain it. So when we try to add things to Scripture, when we try to add rules to measure our godliness, then we have to come up with caveats to be able to find out how we get around that. Because we can't do it. We can't live up to the standard. Praise God for His grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. So as as we see the flip from legalism to license, that pendulum swings back and forth over and over throughout history. Today, we are dealing with a church at large that is trapped in external religious activity and yet denies truth. Our society denies truth because the church has failed to represent truth. In the book of Romans, I'm going to try not to talk much and let God's word speak for itself. Chapter 1, starting with verse 18 The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We have an innate knowledge of God. We are created in His image. So all human beings have a uh, a yearning for the divine, for the eternal. And yet, as a race, as a human race, we neither glorified Him nor gave thanks to Him. And our foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So much like today. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies to one another. Let's not miss out on the therefore. All of these sins are symptoms of the disease. So let's not get hung up on one individual particular sin. The disease is sin. The individual activities are the symptoms. And when we reject God, He hands us over to the symptoms of the disease. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Sin is its own punishment. Verse 28, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind the corruption of the mind so that they do what they so that they do what ought not to be done they have become filled with every kind of wickedness evil greed and depravity they are full of envy murder strife deceit and malice they are gossips slanderers god-haters insolent arrogant and boastful they invent ways of doing evil they disobey their parents they have no understanding no fidelity no love no mercy although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, the wages of sin is death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The Bible comes down really hard on those who teach others wrongly. Listen. There's a big movement in the LGBTQ plus agenda for us to believe that there is this dichotomy. That to love someone who finds themselves in that lifestyle, we must agree with it and tell them that it is good and right. It is not. Nor is it loving to tell them that. I cannot love someone with untruth. I cannot see a starving child and think it's loving to give them poisoned food. I can't. That's what Jesus is talking about here. They're hindering the spiritual walk of others. And when we deny the truth, we are hindering the spiritual walk of others. That that is not bigotry, phobia or hatred but if you allow that to become a judgment of someone else's lifestyle then that becomes that why because it's inside of you you and I have to have a heart like Christ we cannot ever deny truth because truth is the most loving thing there is but we must always speak truth in love From the motivation of love, with the manner of love, with the intent of restoration to life. We need to recognize that sin is its own punishment. And if we love people, then the right thing for us to do is to gently and honestly speak the truth of God into their lives and to develop relationships that allow us that room. You can't preach at people. That doesn't help anyone. You need to walk with people. So if you really want to win your LGBTQ plus friend to Christ, then put your arms around them and love them. But love them with the honest truth about how they can have a relationship with God. Listen, that's not the only issue. That's an issue that's in the news a lot. But whatever sin you're dealing with right now in your life, it's exactly equal. If you are living with someone you're not married to, as if you are married, then you are outside of God's will. And you need to get that right. And we live in churches that teach that that's okay. And it's not. Does that mean you're a horrible person and can't be saved? Of course not. You're already a horrible person. That's why you need to be saved. Just like me. I'm a horrible person. But I have a fantastic God. Every single one of us has sin we need to repent of. And it starts inside. We need a new heart. We need to give all of ourselves to Him and stop holding back. And when we stop holding back and we give Him all of ourselves. Then we find real life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to be real. Help us to be honest with ourselves and with you. Strip away any agenda of our own. Lord, Even as I stand here, I want to ask you to keep us from hiding our sinful judgment in what we might consider righteous indignation. But I want to also ask you, Lord, to keep us from hiding our cowardice in what we want to call love. Teach us to follow you no matter what. Teach us to choose what we take in so that the light that is inside of us is all light with no darkness. Keep us from being religious hypocrites who go through the motions and have all the externals but miss out on the whole point of a relationship with you. Protect us from the lie that this life is all there is that it needs to be clung to. Help us to see Jesus as more precious than anything else so that we can surrender all that we have to you, our whole self. Pray this in Jesus' name.